Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the Nocilla Cast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Tuesday, August 27th, 2019, and this is show number 746. Well, I have to say, I really appreciate you waiting a few extra days for the show so Steve and I could go play with my family in Michigan. We had an absolute blast on this trip. It could not have been more fun. Well, I'm afraid we don't have a chit-chat across the pond for this week, but Barbu Shots will be back with another non-programming by Stealth episode this coming weekend. Turns out a listener asked that he explain DNS over HTTPS, which is also known as DOH. Sounds like something Homer Simpson would say to me, but I'm sure it's going to be really fun to learn about. Before we dig into the main part of the show, we have a recording from Nosilicast Way Brad about last week's chit-chat across the pond. Hi, Allison. This is Nasilla Castaway Brad from Los Angeles here. As a follow-up to the Chit Chat Across the Pond episode number 605 on wireless CarPlay with Sandy Foster, I wanted to provide information regarding why wireless CarPlay is not more widespread. As was pointed out in the episode, almost all new cars that have CarPlay support offer only wired CarPlay. Until recently, only BMW offered wireless CarPlay, although some Audis and Minis have it now, and Mercedes claims they will have it soon. For most people, the only options for wireless CarPlay are aftermarket solutions like the Alpine ILX107, which I own. I believe the main reason wireless CarPlay is not widespread is that wireless CarPlay units are significantly more expensive to produce and purchase. For one thing, wireless CarPlay requires both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. The Bluetooth connection is merely used to perform the initial handshake between the iPhone and the car stereo, also known as the infotainment system for the younger listeners of this podcast. The actual transmission of data and graphics is performed via Wi-Fi. Indeed, the bandwidth needs for CarPlay are great enough that it requires a dual-band Wi-Fi chip. So a wireless CarPlay stereo requires this additional chip, which a wired unit, even with Bluetooth, does not. Further, the additional hardware requirements do not stop there. According to an August 15, 2019 USA Today article, Wi-Fi transmissions can interfere with GPS transmissions. Therefore, wireless CarPlay needs the use of an external antenna and supporting electronics to assist in the GPS connection for a robust experience. With wired CarPlay, the use of an external antenna is optional. Although I'm not certain of the veracity of the statements regarding Wi-Fi and GPS interfering with each other, I did find some videos and a slide excerpt from WWDC 2016 where Apple clearly indicates that an external antenna support is required for wireless CarPlay, but not wired CarPlay. Anyway, these two items together mean there's an additional cost for both the parts and the testing of wireless CarPlay units as opposed to wired CarPlay. As a testament to this fact, I typically see wireless CarPlay units selling for twice the price of non-wireless units. Indeed, the ILX107 cost me $600, whereas I could have bought a wired unit for only $300. I believe this additional cost and complexity have made most car manufacturers opt to go with wired for now. On a side note, contrary to some people's claim that wireless CarPlay eats up battery power, I found my use of wireless CarPlay does not use extensive power. Indeed, in my one-hour commute to work with heavy CarPlay usage, I usually only have about 5% of the battery used. 
Anyway, Allison, I love the show and appreciate the time you and Bart spend on these episodes. Well, hey, thanks, Brad. That was really, really interesting. I was really curious why there wasn't wireless uh, CarPlay in all cars. It's interesting that the different car companies have gone different paths in this. So uh, really appreciate the feedback and your explanation of this. That was fantastic. In April, I wrote a post entitled, Does the new iPad Mini have a place in your digital life? In my bottom line, I wrote the following. The bottom line is that I'm delighted with the iPad Mini, and it's found many places to squeeze into my digital life. If I had to give up the 12.9-inch iPad Pro or the Mini, I have to say the big girl iPad would definitely win out. But I still love this little device. I find myself carrying it about the house, throwing it in my purse just in case, and just generally playing around with it much more than I ever did the 9.7-inch iPad Pro. But guess what? The novelty wore off. I found that its main purpose is to make my purse heavier. We took it on our trip to Chile and didn't I didn't even take it out of my purse once. It was so forgotten that when I went through security to get on the flight back home, I took out my MacBook Pro and I took out my 12.9-inch iPad Pro and I entirely forgot to take the iPad Mini out of my case. That, you know, that move earned me the double secret body search on that flight, which was fun. I thought maybe I was reaching for my iPhone before the Mini because the iPhone had cellular data. So I put one of my Google Fi data sims into the iPad mini to see if ready internet would make me reach for it when out and about. Nope, that didn't cause me to change my behavior. I still grabbed the iPhone. I then attacked the problem of how difficult it is to type on the iPad mini. I mentioned that in my initial review, the device is too big in portrait mode to type with two fingers, and in landscape, the Apple case is far too floppy to hold the device up at the right angle keeps flopping down to flat on the table, and that makes it just completely useless in the lap as well. I thought maybe a keyboard case would make me use the iPad mini more often. Since ready availability is crucial here, the keyboard case would have to be super thin and light so it could go in my purse. I spent some time on Amazon searching keyboards, making sure they worked with the iPad mini 5, and reading reviews. I know the reviews aren't always useful, but that's what I have. I couldn't decide between two different keyboards, so I bought them both. The two keyboards I bought were the Logitech Ultra Thin Keyboard Cover for $33.20 and the Artec Ultra Thin Keyboard Folio for $22.99. Let's start with the well-known awesome keyboard company, Logitech. The Logitech Keyboard Cover is an odd design. When used as a cover, the iPad connects to the keyboard using magnets along one side just like the Apple cases. Closing the keyboard to the iPad causes the iPad to go to sleep, and it's a fairly sleek design. In order to actually use the keyboard, though, you have to disconnect the iPad from the magnets and stick it to the little slot, which gives you one viewing angle. Now, the advantage is this makes a very stable base, so typing on a lap would be much easier. The Logitech Ultra Thin Keyboard Cover weighs in at 12.8 ounces, which is fairly svelte. I'll tell you what I liked about the Logitech first. The keyboard, while quite small, was really pretty usable. I've always liked the feel of the Logitech keyboards, and this one did not disappoint. I was able to type fairly accurately, which was surprising on such a tiny little device. Now, for the downsides. The device I was shipped had the polarity of the magnetic closure hinge reversed. That meant I was literally unable to stick the iPad to the keyboard and close it. This completely defeated the purpose of having a cover-type keyboard. But that's not all. The Logitech keyboard only worked if it was plugged into power. Yep, the battery would not charge. 
Oh, and the box was partially in French for some reason, and the tiny manual inside was for a completely different keyboard. It felt like it was bootleg, but this was shipped by Logitech themselves through Amazon. In summary, had great typing, but other than that, complete horse poop, as Bart would say. I returned the keyboard and got a full refund from Amazon. Now, it's possible I just got a bum unit and the 1,013 customers who gave it three and a half stars are not lying, or perhaps they bought the $69.88 one on the same page, and that's a good model. The black one looks just like the silver one I got, that's the $69 one, so I don't really know if there's a difference. Now let's talk about the Artec Ultra Thin Keyboard Folio. Logitech set the bar really low to beat, but I wasn't super optimistic based on the price of this device. Again, it was like 22 bucks. The good news is the Artec keyboard actually works when not plugged into power. It has a little connect button for Bluetooth connectivity and an on-off switch to conserve power. The hinge connection is really nice. It's a long uh, rubber-lined piece that goes on the back of the iPad with two small rubber-lined clips on the front. It's very gentle to the iPad and holds the iPad very securely to the case. When closed, it does add some bulk to the back to have that ledge for the connection of the hinge, but it feels very secure. Weighing in at a diminutive 8 ounces, it was far lighter than the Logitech. There's just one thing wrong with this device. It is a simply dreadful keyboard. Probably the main problem is that the space bar is really narrow and offset from center. So instead of being centered between the G and H keys, it's centered on the G, and it's only as wide as from F through H. So look at your keyboard right now and think of how you would type if you had a a space bar from F to H and centered on the G. The sacrifices they made on this keyboard are not limited to the space bar. For example, on a normal U.S. keyboard, on the right you have the semicolon, followed by the apostrophe, and finally the enter key. But in the Artec, the apostrophe has simply been removed. Instead, to get an apostrophe, you have to hold down the function key and hit the letter O. I'm not joking. Function O is an apostrophe. So you're typing along and you try to hit an apostrophe and you will always get a new line feed instead. Happens constantly. To the right of the space bar, there isn't a comma and period key. They're not there. Instead, there's a forward slash and backslash key. And that's real special because with the narrowness of the width of the spacebar, my right thumb entirely misses the spacebar all the time and instead types a forward slash. It took me the longest time to find this question mark as well. While on a normal keyboard, there are three keys to the right of the spacebar before the shift key, the last of which is a question mark. On the Artec, that key is simply gone. Instead, the question mark is on the shift of that super useful forward slash key that replaced the comma. So, other than the fact that the keyboard is entirely unusable, it does charge and connect to the iPad properly. The bottom line is, I don't think I can recommend either the Artec or the Logitech keyboards for the iPad Mini. I think I'll have to figure out a use case for the iPad Mini that doesn't include much typing. Maybe I'll leave it next to my chair in the TV room and see if I reach for it to look up people on IMDb. After I posted this article on the web, I got some really interesting responses about it. In our Slack group, Alistair Jenks said that the fact that the iPad Mini doesn't have a keyboard is actually an advantage to him, and Bart agreed. I, of course, had to argue with them about this. We engaged in some interesting conversations after that about why not having a keyboard would be an advantage. I do not pretend to see their point of view even after we went back and forth six or seven times, but it was fun to learn about the different use cases they had and the different perspective they had. 
If you want to read the discussion, I highly recommend you join our Slack group over at podfeet.com slash Slack. Now, I also got a great letter from Stephen Ramirez, a gentleman I met at MacStock. He didn't know that I had just written a blog post about how I'm not using my iPad mini very much at all. When he saw me at MacStock, I had the iPad mini with me with the awful Artec keyboard attached. Anyway, here's what Stephen wrote. I want to thank you for something you did at MacStock 2019, and you're not even aware of it. After the video presentation, I approached the stage to ask a question, and I noticed you sitting with an iPad mini in your hand. I tell you the saying that, quote, Apple makes products that people don't even know know they need is so true. I know you must have a MacBook, probably an iPad, iPhone, and watch, but I asked myself, why a mini? I thought about this for a month, contemplated what it would feel like using an iPad mini 7.9 inch in conjunction with my 12.9 inch iPad and iPhone XS Max, which is 5.6 inches. Well, now I get it. Hard to explain, but it works. It fills a niche and it makes sense. What a fun, cool, and nifty tablet. Sounds crazy, but different size for a different moment in use. Okay, so this guy was able to find the exact use that I couldn't find even though he saw me using it. How fun is that? After I showed him the article I wrote explaining that I was not using mine, he gave me one more tidbit that I thought was interesting to this discussion. He said, when I bought the 12.9 inch, I also bought the keyboard. I returned it two days later, realized I am not a keyboard user on a tablet. Okay, so now we have the full gamut of users, all with the same types of devices and all with completely different opinions about what's good. Now, I love this kind of dialogue but it, because it helps me realize that when someone asks any of us, what should I buy? We should always try to figure out what the other person wants to do, how they like to work and play with the device before we answer them. You know, our gut reaction is just just give our own opinion. That could very easily be the opposite of what they need to hear. Hello, fellow castaways. This is Troy Shimpis coming to you from a hotel room in South Florida using my brand new MacBook Pro with no extra audio equipment or microphones. So hopefully this one sounds good too. So just an anecdotal story for some fun today to share. Recording this on my new 13-inch MacBook Pro in a hotel room after buying it last night at the local Apple store in the city that I'm visiting. While visiting my parents, my dad was complaining that his late 2014 Mac Mini was slow. While I thought it was just normal wear and tear and whatever slowness and not really concerning, when I sat down to make some cleanup attempts and just change a few things for him, and it took over 64 seconds to open system preferences, yes, I timed it, I thought, well, this ain't good. So I decided we could just replace the internal drive with an SSD and make it all better again. So off to Best Buy I go, get a little $50 SSD, no biggie there. Then I recall that this process to replace the drive in this computer is rather involved. And off to YouTube I go to bone up on that. Oy vey, now I remember, you have to remove the entire logic board to get at the drive in this thing, and you need special tamper-proof torque screws. Alright then. A call to a local repair place indicates the job is going to cost $400. Ugh, I can save my parents money, and I can take care of this. Surely we can get this tool somewhere. You know, the special torque screwdriver with a hole in the center of it? Well, Best Buy is a no. There is no more Radio Shack. No hobby stores in this area has anything close to what I'm asking for. And Home Depot and Lowe's both only have sets that start at the T7 size. And of course, I need a T6. Harbor Freight. Yeah, I remember them. While I've never been to one, I've heard great things about them. And my dad, who owns a dozen of every tool ever made ever, 
loves this place. It's his version of my Best Buy. So we take a little bonding trip for father and son down to Harbor Freight. They have a tamper-proof set that includes all the way down to a T5 size. Score! Get back home. It's about a 20-minute drive. Get the bottom cover off and go to unscrew that first screw. Denied. Huh? Well, that's strange. The T6 size doesn't have the hole in it. Every other size does, but not the T6. All right. Well, this has to be a fluke. So back to Harbor Freight, more dad-son bonding time. We find a dozen or so more of these tools. Every single one of them has the same problem. Well, dad does not give up. So off to the next Harbor Freight, another 20 minutes away, and the same thing. We even got the nice salesperson to go out in the back and get a whole new box from the back. The entire box has the same issue. I'm guessing there's got to be some kind of manufacturing error. We inform them and we leave empty-handed. Well, I can't let my dad continue to struggle with a computer that is slower than my first 286 I built 30 years ago. So as I head to the hotel for the last night, I'm thinking, what can I do? Just buy him a new Mac Mini? Well, at 800 bucks, that is a bit much for someone who just checks email, plays solitaire, and looks at a few car sites. I just needed to get the tool to fix this up, but I leave tomorrow, and Amazon can't get anything here for another two days. What's up with that, Amazon? So, as I ponder, it hits me. Well, I do love my 12-inch MacBook, especially the keyboard, and I know I'm the only one in the world that loves that keyboard. I've been thinking of consolidating the MacBook and my Trash Can Mac Pro into something that's a single laptop. But to do that, I need a machine that has more than one USB-C port, so the MacBook I have just won't cut it as my only main machine. So here I sit, using my brand new MacBook Pro that I can set up in a hotel room, and I used a USB-C cable to transfer from my MacBook to this using Migration Assistant, and that went flawless. And I'll be headed home to set up my dad with my MacBook. I'll hook it up to his monitor and his keyboard setup, and I'll take the Mac Mini home with me and have the time and energy and tools I have at home to get that drive replaced, and then I can bring his back, and it'll be better than new. And just like that, Dad can play solitaire again. Let it not be said I won't bend over backwards to help my parents, or maybe just buy myself a new computer. We'll never know the true motivation, will we? So after using this computer for just a few minutes, and this recording being the first thing I've done on this computer, I can say that I'm rather impressed with it. The touch bar that I thought was going to be kind of gimmicky and not so great, I'm actually enjoying, as I've already come up with a few things that have popped up that I've found useful. And I'm really excited to have a T2 chip with that Touch ID chip in there. I think that's going to help me out for some of the things I do security-wise. The keyboard is very different. It's got a softer feel than the MacBook. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but I really did love that MacBook keyboard. So I'm thinking I can get used to this one as well. Well, that's it for me this week. I hope you all have a great week. I have to say, I love everything about this story from Troy. I especially love the story of bonding with his father on all those road trips to the hardware store. But I, I think my favorite thing is the fact that he managed to justify buying a new MacBook Pro by doing this. This was a fantastic story. You know, we talked about uh, having him re-record with a, with a real microphone, but I don't think you could have gotten the energy and excitement and fun of the fact that he had just gotten home with that Mac and had this fully justified reason for buying it. Hello, this is Sandy Foster with a little tip to try to make life easier for some of us. Have you ever gone into your Mac system preferences and had to figure out which row was hiding a particular preference? And who decided how to organize the categories anyway? If you hate scouring the icons for the correct one, there's a quick fix, one I've been using for years. Simply open System Preferences and go to the View menu in the menu bar. Now select 
organize alphabetically instead of the default organized by categories. That's it. Now you can find what you're looking for without having to decode the categories. My mind has been completely blown by this tip. I've got to know, how long has this been possible to alphabetize system preferences? I'm guessing it's been a really long time and somehow I just never noticed it. You know, I think sometimes using a tool for a hundred years is a disadvantage because you, you know, you just assume you know everything about it. If you had just gotten system preferences today, maybe you would poke all the menus and find out what you could do with it. Well, you know, after posting this tiny tip to our Slack group, did I tell you to join that? Podfeed.com slash Slack. Lewis, who's also known as L. Butler in Slack, mentioned that you can hide items in system preferences. What turns out if you go to that same view menu for system preferences, you have the option to customize. This reveals all of your preference pane options with little check marks next to them. Uncheck an item and they will be hidden from view. My mind was blown a second time. Thank you so much to Sandy and Lewis. You can teach an old dog new tricks. I have two pledge break stories to tell you, and they're both about Patreon this week. Brian Winkler is this week's hero for becoming a patron of the Podfeed podcast. He went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and chose a dollar amount to contribute each week. And for that, I thank him profusely. The other story is about a patron who decided it was no longer the right method for him to be a patron. He asked me to give him my PayPal address so he could contribute that way instead. It's what I love about all of this. You get to choose which is the best way for you and your family, and that includes not contributing at all if you can't afford it, or if you don't find enough value in the content we provide. By the way, former patron who left Patreon... You sent me a message asking for my PayPal address, but you left Patreon before I read your message, so I don't have a way to contact you to tell you how to go do PayPal. You can send me an email at allison at podfeet.com, or you can go to the support the show button and press the PayPal button right there. I should mention that using PayPal, you really don't want to do a, a weekly or monthly contribution because PayPal takes a fee out of every transaction. So lump sums are really better in PayPal. Anyway, send me an email at allison at podfeet.com and I'll tell you the whole scoop about it. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. Thank you so much for doing this on a school night. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem at all. Um, with plenty, with advance notice, I can do almost anything. <laughs> well, I still appreciate it, and I'm sure the audience does as well. Why don't we uh, just dig right in? Indeed, because it's have we is it been more than two weeks or something? Because there was a lot in my RSS reader. So we- <laughs> it it feels like it, it might just because it's been two weeks and a couple of days. Or it was DEFCON. Maybe it's DEFCON. Maybe. Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> that's probably it, actually. So let's start with a little bit of follow-up, actually, from just from recent shows. So just to say that GitHub has uh, joined the WebAuthn Club. So when we get our new Mac OS and our new iOS with WebAuthn built in, one of the places you'll be able to use it is GitHub. And Oh, good. Yeah, given how important it is to keep your source code free from being hijacked by evil people. Yeah. This yeah. is good. Thank you, Microsoft. Yeah, I was going to say, that means Microsoft's in there, right? Yeah. Good, 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 yeah. good. Well, Windows 10 already has WebAuthn, so Microsoft are in there okay. doubly so. So well done, Microsoft X2. Um, so more developments on our human review of voice assistant recordings. Um, color me shocked and or surprised, but Facebook were at it too. 
They were listening in on messenger voice chats, didn't you do? Was it the same sort of, you know, 2% of, or 0.2% or something like that of the number of uh, calls they have, or was it anything worse? It was, No, it was the same thing, because ultimately, that's all that's actually doable on these platforms. Like, yeah. if, if, if Facebook wanted to, they couldn't get a 100% human review. If Apple wanted to, they couldn't get a 100% human review. It only ever can be a sampling. Microsoft. Maybe I said this last time, but I I do think that what they should do, and maybe it's opt-in, but I think they should have an option where I want you to always listen to the thing I say immediately after you answer what I asked you. Yeah. If it's, that's not what I said, or you're a moron, then listen to the, then go back and re-review what you just did. Yeah, I, w- I want a sleep word uh, as well as a wake word. And, you know, bleep off Siri doesn't work. I've tried. Um, <laughs> Exactly. I mean, there's a whole bunch of phrases they could listen for that would suggest that perhaps the thing they just answered was not right. Yes, exactly. Um, Microsoft then have also, last time I think what I said was I didn't know what Microsoft were doing. Well, we do know what Microsoft are doing. Microsoft are doing exactly the same thing, and Microsoft are sticking to their guns and have basically said, no, we need to do this, and we're going to keep doing this. And I kind of admire them for just basically going, nope. Um, well, so, wait a minute. You can't you can't admire them, but be mad at Apple. Well, no. I mean, I, I sort of they I admire their. their, their well, I, mean, I, I don't particularly think Apple did anything wrong because Apple had disclosed it in their privacy statement. Um, it's just that because Apple set themselves at such a high bar, they probably should have been a bit clearer what processing means. Hmm. Right, because Apple okay. said we process these. Apple said how long they kept them. Like Apple didn't lie. It's just that when Apple said process, we assumed that meant no humans. Hmm. Which it didn't. Right. Right. Um. So and I kind of, I kind of, sort of, admire, you know, everyone else is running around panicking. Like Amazon is saying, "Oh, we've stopped. We stopped." Or Facebook is saying, "We've stopped. We stopped." And Apple is saying, "No, no, stop. We stopped. We're changing everything. We're changing everything." And Microsoft's like, "No." We need this. We're doing it. It's like, well, that's refreshing. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, and then, actually, there's an, op- an opinion piece you might like over on Tidbits. Um, why can't users teach Siri about its mistakes? Which is basically what you're opining here, that, that Microsoft should build, <laughs> build in a mechanism where we review Apple. Siri. Apple. Sorry. was who I was talking about. Yeah. Yes. Did yes. you already say the Xbox one, or did you skip that? I'm not sure it's different to the Microsoft one, but yeah, so one of the okay. things in which Microsoft are listening is indeed the Xbox. Okay. All right. Um, and then apparently Apple contractors in Ireland were lifting to a thousand Siri recordings per shift. So whatever they were listening to, they were short. And yeah, that was where I heard the 0.2%, something like that, of of state questions were, were listened to. But I also heard then they laid all those people off when they said, okay, we aren't going to do it anymore. Yep. And then they got in a whole bunch of trouble for doing that. And it's like, well, can you win here? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't want to do this, but you want to employ these people to do this. Hmm. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So f- three security mediums. First one got all the media attention in the world because it was a DefCon and it involved Apple, and it was really kind of well, it was kind of cool actually. Like my my nerdy geek <laughs> cool, I kind of liked it. But anyway. A security researcher demoed that he could make a malicious cable out of a legitimate, genuine Apple cable 
in his own kitchen at home, and he could do it in such a way that you couldn't tell by looking at the cable. He could basically get it all hidden inside the cable. So this cable gets a little brain inserted into it, which includes a Wi-Fi receiver. And at all times, it behaves like a perfectly normal USB cable. So if you give it to someone to use, their their suspicions won't be raised by it not being a USB cable. It will indeed be a USB cable. But sitting inside it is a little computer with a Wi-Fi connection. And when the attacker logs in to the Wi-Fi over little web interface, he can or she can then launch different attacks into the Mac that this cable is now plugged into. Um, so it was able to demonstrate doing things like sending terminal commands, which basically means you can do anything. Um, now, none of this is new news in the sense that we have known about malicious USB cables literally for years. We There were stories about them being sold on Amazon at one stage. So you didn't even have to have any skills. I think what made this one sort of stand out is the fact that it was presented at DEF CON and it looked exactly like an Apple cable because it was an Apple cable that had just been tinkered with. And you couldn't tell. It didn't look like anything, which I guess made it a bit, you know, sexier than what we've seen before. But ultimately, the main takeaway from this story is that you should never have been plugging anything from an untrusted source into your computer anyway. And you still shouldn't plug anything from an untrusted source into your computer. And maybe if you're buying cables online and the price looks too good to be true, maybe it is too good to be true. Yeah, that's a hard one, though, because, I mean, you know, Apple charges $40 or something for a short cable, you know. It's too much. Right. I mean, they charge a, an arm and a leg for their cable. So anything you buy online is going to be a half to a quarter of what Apple charges, which may, looks too good to be true. You know, I mean, you're going to be searching <laughs> around, right? And you're going to see that, you know, Apple goes for 20, you know, Anchor goes for 10 or whatever. And then some guy sells you a cable for a dollar. At the very least, we can agree that the dollar is definitely dodgy. Suspicious. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. That that's such a tough one because that is exactly the um you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that would be in the low price range that even I I'm looking up really quick, uh trying to see what a lightning cable costs from like the, the ones that Apple recommend or I'm sorry, that uh Amazon does. Here are the Amazon basics, uh twelve ninety nine. Yeah, so it's about half price. Yeah. That's, yeah. I don't know. That's a tough one. But, but you're right. I mean, this vendor. could have been any cable. The guy just said it was really a lot harder with the Apple cable, which it makes that kind of an interesting thing, right? Yeah, because they're well manufactured, so they're hard to get into. <laughs> yeah. And put back yeah. together. So they could take anybody's. They could take an anchor cable and resell it with, with uh, that chip in there. It would be a lot easier for them. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, if you are the kind of person who's a high-value target, you need to be extra suspicious yeah, uh, because it would definitely be worth the effort if you were a high-ranking CEO and someone had control of your bag for five minutes to swap out your cable with a with a hijacked one. I mean, that could be very valuable. If you work in human rights or something, there's definitely you know your bag might get searched at an airport, and your perfectly look, normal-looking cable might look like a perfectly normal-looking cable again. Only it might not be your cable anymore. So maybe right. if I was a human right. rights lawyer or something, I might put an intentional nick or something into my cable. So, that so you I, could tell it was yours? So I could tell it was mine, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I've started buying these braided cables from uh, Amazon Basics, braided cables, and they're flaming red. And I, nobody I know has cables just like this, three foot for twelve ninety nine. I could just imagine, you know, the, the the Chinese government or whatever, they go to sneak in their fake cable and they open your bag and they go, oh, oh no, we don't have one of those. <laughs> they make them in pink too, just for you, just so you know. So that might be a color nobody's going to get. So do, do yourself and Steve have a different favorite color, and they each get different color cables, or? Yeah, uh, that's what I'm trying to do is I can tell it's mine if it's red, right? Yeah, that's what I <laughs> we, do. Uh, we I we definitely blue. bought different colored uh, gear ties. So I brought – he always likes everything in black. So all of his are black and mine are like flaming green or, you know, bright orange. And so I know if it's my cable because it will have my tw- my gear tie tied over it. Uh-huh. That will do it all right. But that wouldn't help with these crazy people trying to hijack my computer. Well, it would in the sense that they'd have a hard time because right? they're not going to be able to do the, the, the operation while you have your back turned. So they're going to have to have one they made earlier. So you're going to be way harder to have one they made earlier. Oh, with the red cable, sure, but not with the uh, the gear tie. No, not with the gear tie. That's true. Yeah. Um, actually, something else. So you know the way we've known for years that you shouldn't pick up a USB stick in the parking lot and shove it into your computer to see who it belongs to and go be a good Samaritan and give it back? Right. I heard a really interesting new take on how attackers do this in the wild. They now go to the pro- to the effort of getting branded merchandise printed with the company they're attacking. So you know the way. Oh, so you drop it in IBM's parking lot with IBM branding on it? Yes. Oh, that's genius. Isn't it just genius of oh, the evilest kind? Horrible. <laughs> yes. And specifically, the guy said, "You go to the bit of the parking lot where it says reserved parking, and you drop." Oh, it so you're getting high value targets so at the same time. Targets with their own branded logo. Oh, one of my colleagues dropped his IBM whatever. Yeah. I'm oh, like, you're that's... a genius. I'm so happy you're doing a penetration test and not an attacker. Evil genius. That's, yeah. a, that's just horrible. Yeah, so anyway, so there we go. From the department of do not plug things into your computer. It's really where yeah. we're going. Maybe it's a good thing Apple are getting rid of ports. <laughs> There's no temptation here. It doesn't fit. There you go. See? <laughs> um, security medium number the second, the Bluetooth knob attack, which stands for key negotiation of Bluetooth because you have to have a backronym. So this is a vulnerability in the spec itself, which has basically Uh-oh. been there as long as Bluetooth has existed. No one's quite no one noticed that you could, you know, send this sequence of packets and cause this bad thing to happen. But if you send the right sequence of packets while a Bluetooth while two Bluetooth devices are negotiating their connection, while they're doing their pairing thing, um if you are within radio range while two Bluetooth devices are pairing, you can trick them into both thinking the other said that they really can't handle much entropy, so please only use one byte of entropy for the encryption. Oh, that's a cool hack. Yeah. And so they both kind of go, God, you're dumb. And then go ahead and negotiate (laughs) to one byte of entropy. Oh, that's that's just deliciously horrible. Yep. Wow. So um, the standards body that control Bluetooth has a- admitted that, yep, the problem is real. They have updated the spec and vendors are in the process of updating their firmware. There's a couple of silver linings here. So the first silver lining is that this only works at the moment devices are pairing. So the attack window is quite short in time. And then it only works if you're within radio range. So the attack window is also quite short in space. So 
it might be a useful attack at a conference or something where people are coming in, going, and maybe they want to pair up with a portable speaker or something. But on the whole, in your average day-to-day life, not all that big of an attack surface. And then the second silver lining is that both devices must be vulnerable for this to work. And we all know that the firmware in 99.9% of Bluetooth speakers is never going to see an update ever, 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 no matter what happens. But if our Macs and our iPhones get updated, we're fine. Oh, because it has to be both sides? It has to be both sides. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. And the good news is Apple already have this patched. So fire extinguisher here for sure. Yes, exactly. So on the whole, while it was definitely getting a lot of media attention and it had a cool name, and if it has a cool name, it will obviously get media attention, it's it's not panic stations here, which is good. Good. Uh, Security Medium 3, then, is sort of a one of these conglomerations of little stories, I guess. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about how tracking prevention in browsers. I mean, it is something that Mozilla are very actively focusing on. It's something that Apple are very actively focusing on. And even Microsoft are doing a bit of work in Edge on the topic. The odd person out is sort of Google, who who are having a fight with themselves, as far as I can tell, because Google, the advertising company, is very much against tracking protection. And Google, the browser <laughs> vendor, seems to quite like the idea. <laughs> and... The end result is that we have some very interesting contrasts in the news that's broken the last two weeks. So the first thing that happened chronologically was that Apple published a new policy for how they're going to deal with tracking prevention going forward with the WebKit project. So it was it was put it's on the WebKit website. It's very human friendly, very easy to read, it's not long. And it basically lays out what Apple are going to do. And really I can sum it all up in one sentence. Apple are going to treat tracking like malware and will do everything in their power to prevent it, even if that breaks some things. Ooh. Uh, Also kind of interesting, at the bottom of their document, which isn't very long, there's a heading called Acknowledgements, and it literally says that Apple's policy was inspired by and derived from Mozilla's policy from a a month or two back. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. So clearly the open source... That's a nice tip of the hat. A lovely tip of the hat. And the open source browsers are very clearly singing off the same hymn sheet on this one. A few days later, a blog post appeared on Google. Now, this is not an announcement of a product, right? They just literally blogged about an idea they've had. And they've called it a privacy sandbox. And it's neither private nor a sandbox. They're going to try to find a metric for measuring how tracky a website is. And they're going to give every website a quota of trackiness and then stop them doing any more tracking after they've had their quota. And that way you can have your privacy cake and eat it, apparently. How much is enough? (laughs) Any amount is too much, is my opinion. So Yeah, just a little bit. It's only got a little bit of spam in it. Yeah, so basically this has been met with a fairly round negative reaction by the industry as far as I can tell. I haven't. I didn't find a single person whom I find credible arguing in favor of it. Every Everything I read was like people going, this is dumb. Google are clearly conflicted with Google. This is a terrible idea. This is impractical. This is just plain old silly. There was no one going, oh, genius. I just have a little bit of tracking, because that'll solve our problems. 
So anyway, details in the show notes, links to the various uh, policies and so forth. And as I say, I recommend people have a read of the Apple one because it's not this big, horrible, evil, legally stuff. It's really <laughs> quite human friendly and straightforward. Oh, cool. So that then brings us into notable security updates. First up to the post is Apple, who have had to issue an emergency patch to patch their patch because their last patch unpatched a patch from before. <laughs> oh, I've heard about this, but that was the best put I've heard of it. <laughs> yep. So in tech speak, How embarrassing. Yeah, in tech speak, this is called a regression bug. Obviously, at some point in their you know, GitHub or wherever they're using to version their operating system. They branched at a point a little too soon in the tree for the next version of the Uh, OS, and one of the patches they had made before fell out of the tree. uh, And so the last major update to iOS did not have a patch for a known bug, a very well-known bug now that it was patched, which meant that for the first time in literally years, a fully patched iPhone could be jailbroken. That was that was kind of funny. I di- I didn't even realize that jailbreaking was no longer a thing until this came out, and everybody's like, "What? We can jailbreak again?" I didn't realize it was pretty much over. Yeah. So to jailbreak for the last couple of years, what you've had to do is stay a few versions back because as uh. Apple fixed their OS, the patches get reverse engineered to find out what the flaw was that had been patched. And that can then be used to derive a jailbreak. But of course, that jailbreak will only work on the stuff that hasn't been patched because they worked out the jailbreak based on the patch. And so jailbreakers have had to basically run insecure. Well, look, jailbreaking makes your phone insecure anyway. So I guess in for a penny, in for a pound. But it was very, very much a niche thing. And there was a lot of people quite happy at Apple's mistake. Um, anyway, they <laughs> have nothing patched else the patch. but to make fun of them, right? Yeah, so they've patched the patch, and so we're all good again. So make sure you're up to date. Uh, then we had plain old regular patch Tuesday. Um, the most noteworthy fixes. So Microsoft issued a bunch of fixes, all the usual stuff. But the most noteworthy update was to the RDP, the Remote Desktop Protocol, um, and Microsoft described this vulnerability as wormable. That is Microsoft's characterization of this vulnerability. So if you are so running Wormable is where it can go from person to person to person, right? Well, it means that an attacker could exploit the vulnerability remotely across the network without requiring any interaction from you. Oh, oh okay. So a worm can spread silently without your help. Okay. Whereas a Trojan is the inverse of a worm. A Trojan can only spread with your help, and most viruses are somewhere on the spectrum in between. Okay. But yeah, the worm is a scary one. Basically, that's like Code Red and all those scary ones, because basically your computer just has to be on the internet, and it can get infected. And once it's infected, it starts infecting everything else that it can see. And so they can just spread like wildfire through a network. So is this something we're updating the OS, the Microsoft OS? Mm -hmm. Fixes it? Just patch windows, yep. Okay, uh, I'm seeing in your notes that you also have to patch. Uh, there's an Android app that they they wrote. Yes. So that, that is a separate. To? Yeah, that's a separate update. Also released as part of Patch Tuesday. That Android's implementation of RDP also has a fix. Um, but it's from Microsoft. Microsoft it wrote it. Yes. Now they also okay. have one for the Mac, which they didn't patch. So I guess it must have been fine. I guess, or they forgot, which would be worse. It would be worse. But anyway, I run the Microsoft one because it's actually really reliable and really good. Um, hmm. 
much to my surprise, because it didn't used to be, but they gave it a lot of TLC in the last couple of years. Excellent. Probably because Azure heavily depends on, on stuff like RDP. Is, you know, oh, how okay. do you plug a monitor into a VM in the cloud? <laughs> right? You RDP to it. RDP going around. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, Firefox pushed out a patch to a fairly nasty bug in their new and shiny built-in password manager. Little problem with master passwords. Ooh. So you probably want to patch that. Um, and then Google have patched eight security holes in their Nest cameras. And I don't think hmm. you want unpatched cameras in your house. So you should definitely patch those. No, but the existence of patches is a good thing. It is indeed a good thing. But if they exist and you don't apply them, that's a bad thing. That's true. I don't think they call them Nest anymore. Well, I, I literally... trying to drop that name, but... Yeah, that headline is from Naked Security, not from me. It's a clickable link. Right, right. But it might be when they were called Nest, uh, the ones that used to be called Nest. That is actually entirely possible because obviously the physical casing did not magically rewrite itself. Right. I would like a patch for my Nest uh, uh, smoke detector because the main reason you buy a Fancy Pants $200 smoke detector is so that it doesn't go off for no reason. That would be one of the things, yeah. Second, yeah, that is second only off. to it always going off when there is a reason. Wait, no, that's good. No, no, that's second, I'm saying. My requirements for a smoke detector oh. are first, it always goes off when there is a fire. And secondary to that, it never goes off when there isn't. Right, right. You do want the other one first. You but uh, one. yeah, it's really nifty. It just goes off. It goes, yeah, there's smoke. The smoke alarm, it's going to be on. I'm going to turn the smoke alarm. It's going to be really loud. It's going to... No, and then it stops. And the and the app is supposed to show us any notifications and there aren't any. It's like, no, I didn't I didn't say anything. Well, me? So it's not me? actually going off. It's telling me it's going to go off because there's smoke. And so we go tearing out in the hallway and there isn't. So now, of course, what are we doing? We're ignoring it. Ooh. Yeah, right? Right, yeah, okay. That's many shades of not a good thing. Yeah. Uh finally in here we have a PSA, a whole bunch of security researchers which came out out of course DEFCON. Um, security researchers have been focusing on printers because we tend to plug those into our networks and forget about them. And this yeah, is we do. doubly true of corporate networks, of course, which tend to have a lot of printers and tend to have a lot of not patching of them. And some of them are actually on the public internet, which is double extra dangerous. So if you are the owner of an HP, Brother, Kyocera, Lexmark, Rico, or Xerox printer... You need to get yourself the latest firmware updates. That's probably 75% of printers out there. Pretty much. I was so, trying to figure out who they left out of that list, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank because... Canon. Yes, Canon is out of the link. I was going to say Kodak, whom I used to love, but they're bust, so they're not... Yeah. Not. So uh, that's interesting because uh, a firmware update, where is that going to... How are you even going to do that? Through the web interface, almost certainly. I mean, pretty much every printer is is powered by a web interface these days. Well, which I don't have any kind of web interface. I've never seen a web interface on a printer. I bet you it does. You just haven't been there. Uh, which also means it has its oh, default actually, user actually, password. You know what? You might be right. That rings a really faint bell. They're also full so, of web interfaces with full admin control and a default username and password of blank or 0000. I mean, the, the printers are just a train wreck of security. <laughs> Um, so it wouldn't come through the Apple gives you all the drivers. This is not a driver. It's not something on the Mac side. It is no. a, some firmware that's going to go onto the Mac. 
I mean, out of the printer itself. It is indeed. Now, if you install the apps that come with your printer, which I strongly advise people never do because they're always bloatware and it's terribly written. Right. But if you do, then it'll probably tell you it has an update. Maybe. Okay. Assuming it didn't make you stay four OSs back. <laughs> well, I'm on a page called Updating or Upgrading uh, Printer Firmware at HP's website. Yeah. Have fun. <laughs> It's not like it ever works, anyway. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it could be a great command and control server for some malware somewhere. They don't care. It doesn't well, print. They just want the Linux kernel. Right, right. One of my uh, most uh, upvoted blog posts of all time was one I wrote called The Printer is a Lie. <laughs> <laughs> Got a lot of fun out of that one. I now want cake. Anyway. <laughs> Notable security news. The Better Business Bureau, a wonderfully alliterative organization, is warning that scammers are now using uh, search result manipulation in conjunction with voice assistants to trick, basically to trick your, your, your A lady or your S lady into giving the wrong phone number if you ask for what is the support number for Dell or what is the support number for some company. Because, of course, you'll what? always get the first answer, right? If you're Googling okay. if you're Googling, and the web page that gives you the answer looks dodgy, like the URL is not Dell.com or whatever, you're going to be suspicious. But if you're in a voice assistant, you're only going to get the answer. You don't know where the voice assistant got the answer. So if attackers successfully <sighs> gamed the search results to get their wrong answer higher up the rankings, it could look as suspicious as you like to a human in a browser. It won't look suspicious to the AI lady. (laughs) And you as a recipient of the information are presented with no context, so you cannot know how fishy it is. Oh, that's that's a great point. Yeah. You know, the the reason this won't be widespread as a problem, though, is you can never find the support number for for, uh, any company ever. Well, that means this attack is more dangerous. Well, because yeah, they're not I even suppose. competing against. Like... <laughs> yeah, it's <right. laughs> oh, so sad. Yeah, it is so sad. But basically, the Better Business Bureau—I love saying that—they uh, have a simple piece of advice: when you're looking for something as important as a, as a support number, do it yourself. Don't yeah. trust your voice assistant. Which I thought was very simple advice. So I thought I'd share. Yeah. Okay. Good. In a presentation at DEF CON, we said that a lot today, Google's Project Zero security researchers warned of a big problem for the cheaper end of Android phones. They come pre-installed with malware far more often than they should. And they basically lay it all out. And this comes down to the fact that when you sell your phone for basically no margin or a negative margin, you need to do some post-sales monetization. In other words, you need to huh. sell crapware bordering on malware to get your money back. This is like those televisions um, that were being sold really, really, really cheap because they were listening to you and selling your data to ad companies. You know, same business model here. We won't charge you for the product. We'll monetize you afterwards. But that's never in so, your interest. So what's the solution to this? Don't buy cheap phones? Yep. Stick to the, st- the don't go off brand and the, the the company you've never heard from. Stick with the Samsungs and the you know Google, I guess, and uh, stick with the brands who've earned themselves a reputation, even if that includes catching fire every now and then. Hmm. <laughs> That's not quite how they phrased it. I may have slightly paraphrased. 
Okay, that's funny right there. So we now have two contrasting stories, both about Kaspersky. So on the one hand, since 2015, Kaspersky's desktop AV product has been injecting JavaScript into every web page you view, even when you view them over HTTPS, because, of course, they are so deeply embedded in your OS that they they get to have access to stuff after the HTTPS wrapper has been removed. And they were embedding this JavaScript in such a way that it contained a unique ID and it was inside the document object model, which meant that any JavaScript legitimately running on the web page could simply check the DOM for the Kaspersky ID and it was unique to the install and never changed. It was the ultimate undeletable cookie. Oh, jeez. So they've done a software update. They didn't think to remove the sudden JavaScript, no. It's now a different unique ID. A unique ID that identifies what version of Kaspersky you're running. So any, if you're even slightly out of date and there's a single known vulnerability, the whole planet knows that you're on an insecure version of Kaspersky because that's much better. Don't, so, so yeah. since 2015, since 2015. Are, are, have they stopped doing it now that they've been well, no, revealed? So they've changed. Is that their business? No, so they've changed from the, from, the, from the ID being one that uniquely identifies you to one that uniquely identifies the version of Kaspersky you're running. Okay, but they're still injecting JavaScript yes. in all web pages? Yeah. <laughs> they're not stopping that. That's no, because these, right, there's no actual need for third-party AV anymore because Windows Defender has your back. So they're trying to invent a need for themselves. And in the process, all they're doing is making your computer less secure and less reliable. And that has been my opinion of third-party AV for a couple of years now. But I think at this stage, most of the planet has arrived at the same conclusion. They're not adding value. They're adding features that they hope to trick you into thinking are value. But what they're actually doing is making your computer more insecure. It's my opinion. So, <laughs> I'm just baffled. I mean, you've like you say, you've got Windows Defender right there. Why would you do that? Why? Habit? Because it came pre-installed on your computer, up and running, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. nagged you after a month to say, oh, if you don't pay us, your computer will be insecure. Did we not mention that there's a free AV? Whoops. Anyway, so that's the not-so-good Kaspersky hat. On the other hand, Kaspersky don't only sell um, AV. Kaspersky are also a security research company who do security work. So Kaspersky Labs, which is the other half of Kaspersky, they were doing security research, and they found something very useful for the planet to know about. They found an app in the Google Play Store with 100 million downloads that had been legitimate, but the owners got tired of making a small amount of money writing legitimate software and instead turned the app into malware, presumably to make more money writing malware. And the thing has 100 million downloads. No way. So yet again, be careful. Install the apps you need and no more than the apps you need. And I'm really sad but, about that because it used to be fun to just play around with apps. Well, I play around with a lot of apps still, but uh, hmm. But I mean, I, you know, after all the work Google has been doing to keep uh, to clean the Play Store up, 
that's got to be disappointing to them to have this happen yet again. I hope so, and I hope that they have their lesson learning hat on. Well, what's their lesson learning hat? Well, I mean, whatever this is a legitimate scanning, company. Whatever automated scanning they're doing, it's missing out on some big stuff, because this thing was reaching out to command and control service and downloading fresh code to install into itself. Yeah. So... I, I am sure there are some AV definitions being frantically updated within Google at the moment. I hope so. Yeah. So, a few months ago, Facebook said they were going to give us a tool to allow us to delete their data about us. They have released a tool. It does do something. But what it definitely does not do is delete anything. So, this tool has been rolled out... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it's only available in three countries at the moment on a trial basis. And how they picked these three countries, I will never know, because I cannot find anything in common between them. Ireland. Yay. Spain. And South Korea. Find the link, because I can't. So, they are the Ireland only three. And Spain, both in the EU. Yeah, but so then you throw... That's GDPR, but I can't see what an South Korea has to do with anything. And what about all the rest of the European countries who are just as GDPR bound as we are? Yeah. Anyway, we three countries have this tool at our disposal should we want to use it. It doesn't do nothing, but it doesn't delete anything. So what does it do then? It allows you to disassociate the information from your account. So they will keep all of the tracking. <laughs> and they will just tie it to an anonymous ID instead of tying it to your Facebook account. That's it. That is the sum total of the privacy control we are getting that they had bigged uh, up so much. I, you know, I am right now really sad that I have a clean tag on my podcast. You know, I mean, there are they're, some not choice nice, phrases, they're not good there? people. Yep, 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 yep. And I, there's a whole bunch of other Facebook news that I've put down into suggested reading because it will only make crankitude worse. Yeah. So this is the not cranky making stuff. <laughs> ah, anyway, to cheer us up, Big Telecom in and every US state has vowed to end America's robocall hell, as the headline Gizmodo put in it. Basically, all of the state's attorney general... No, I got that wrong. State attorneys general... I know you pluralize yeah. it funny, and I think I may have gone, I may have doubled funny, didn't gone back to normal. Anyway, the state attorneys general and the big telecommunications company in the US have all gotten together to launch a program for fighting robocalls. They're going to mark them as spam up front for free and basically help American consumers hopefully finally defeat this scourge. You would have thought there was a technical solution in there somewhere. Yeah. There is. Not not a you know let's let's stop the funnel from going where they want it and have it you know it, it's like they're gonna they're gonna put a, a a net out to catch it rather than have it not be born in the first place. Well, n yes and no because the second story then is that AT and T Mo AT and T and T Mobile have both rolled out a new technology for detecting when the source of a phone call has been spoofed. and that's a big part of what's going on with that first story. So there are technical. Oh, okay, all right. But, that, but the, the call is still being made. Right, but you can't, as a telephone system that's connected to a planet-wide network, you can't, not, you can't stop the call being made. 
it's coming from Bangalore. All you can do is, as it comes in, try to figure out what you think and then let the person receiving the call know what you think. Well, but I, that's what I'm saying. You would think there was a technical solution to being able to spoof the number. Well, no, because there's a legitimate reason for spoofing the number. What is that? Really? Yes, What's because re- if you are a company offering technical support at local rate numbers, and also you may have your support staff in Bangalore, but you want the from number to be Apple. So that there are. Yeah, I would give that up. <laughs> Well, but no, we've ended up in a place where there actually is a proper technological solution that involves digital signatures and actual technologies at the problem, which is what's being yeah. implemented here by AT&T and T-Mobile. So we do have technical, like it's technology being thrown at this as well as other stuff. Right, right. I'm just thinking root cause versus uh, everything else. You well, know? the root cause versus patching. The root cause is a global network where the weakest link is the strongest security you get, and it covers the entirety of planet Earth, including countries you've never heard of and couldn't point to on a map. I didn't say I knew the technical solution, Bart. (laughs) I'm saying it seems like someone smarter than me should be able to figure that out. Uh, With enough time, yes. (laughs) The universe may not contain enough time, but if it did, yes. Suggested reading, then. Uh, quite a few of these have a little star next to them, and I just want to quickly mention. Um, PSA's Tips and Advice, a nice, timely article from Intego, Safari Chrome Firefox, which is the most private browser for Mac? Question mark. It's a good hmm. breakdown of what the different browsers do, and it may, if you, you know, if you've gotten thinking about this with the, the stuff we talked about earlier, might be nice to have a read of exactly what they get up to, and Intego have that nicely connect, collected together. Uh, I think you or a Nocilla Castaway, and I wish I could remember if it was you or Nocilla Castaway, someone pointed me at a cool infographic from Cool Infographics called MacBook Setup Essentials for College Students. Uh, someone else may have sent it to you, but I think I did too. But I got it from a Nocilla Castaway, I think. Someone, thank you very much because it's really good. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I don't remember who you are. I, I, when I looked at it, it, it's really, really, it's excellent. It's excellent. It's just a few simple steps. The one thing that I wish had been in there was that uh, that tick mark in Safari of download safe files. Yes, that perennial. That's the one I was looking for to see if it was in there, and it, it wasn't. Yeah, I, I, you know, Apple are generally pretty good on security. They just have this gaping hole in their vision, the shape of that checkbox. It's so annoying. Yeah, yeah. And notable breaches. You know, it also did say to turn on the built-in firewall, and we don't generally suggest that. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt ah, anything, but it you, doesn't help much. It does if you're a college student in a shared dorm room. Why? Because then, right, I don't turn on my firewall in my house because my iPad then has more trouble finding my iTunes library on my Mac. But if my house right. was full of strangers, I would have a very different opinion about the firewall. Huh, so you'd have the software firewall built in on instead of just using a VPN? Yes, or both, belt and suspenders. I would definitely turn it on because it's such an easy checkbox to turn on. Mm. And it's really Mm. low on resources. Like The built-in firewall takes up so much less resources and stuff than a VPN does. And it's just going to be on. Like you're not going to have to. It's not going to have to connect. It's it's just going to be on. Hmm. A VPN isn't a bad solution either. 
assuming it's a paid-for VPN. Because a free right. VPN <laughs> is stealing your privacy. So if you're a college student, are you going to be paying for a VPN or turning on the free firewall that's built into your Mac? Yeah, I suppose. But uh, so they're not behind a firewall normally because they're using free Wi-Fi all over their dorm kind of a thing. Well, okay. So the, right. So the, the yes and no, right? The question is, where is the bad guy? So if you're using free Wi-Fi in a dorm, the chances are it's knotted so that the internet as a whole can't reach into you. But the okay. chances are also very high that inside your dorm, everyone you're sharing that dorm with is sharing a network with you and they can all see your computer. So would the software firewall help you with that? Yes, that's exactly what it's for. Hmm. Because so the the your router sits at the edge of your network, but your software firewall firewall sits on your computer. So right. Depending on where the danger is, where where is the boundary of the safe zone? Yeah. Well, I would assume the boundary of the safe zone was probably your roommate. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then from the next level up, it's everybody in the dorm. Exactly. So that's why. In a home, I don't turn on the firewall because all it does is get in my way. I want my iTunes library just visible on the network to everyone. But a college dorm is different. What about a college campus? It would depend on exactly how the network was set up, but I would, again, be inclined to say, basically, if you turn on your Mac and you see in your sidebar someone else's Mac, turn on your firewall. So do you keep your firewall turned on at the university where you work? Um, if I had a laptop that I moved, yes and no. Um, it's complicated. <laughs> okay. I, I, we don't need to get into yeah, specifics. Yeah, we, we probably don't want to get into it because, but because I work for IT, I'm not normal. And I yeah. might not be normal yeah. in many other ways. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, in the abstract, yes. Right, right. Uh, where, where was I? All uh, right. Next star. Ah, yes. Movie Our pass. Favorite notable breaches and privacy violations. Uh, there's a whole bunch more in the list, but I think the one we kind of have to mention is that Movie Pass have found yet another way to screw up. Oh, can I say that? I have the yes. Yes, that's allowable. That's allowable. Uh, did they they screwed up before? I didn't remember that. Well, isn't it MoviePass who basically almost went bust by basically saying, uh, well, you can go to any movie, only if you all go to every movie, we can't afford you for you to go to any movie. Oh, that one. Yeah, from a bus business perspective, but not necessarily uh, yeah, so from I'm, a security perspective. I'm sort of surprised. I suppose, no, they had people's credit card information because they were so popular, They basically their business model exploded. So I guess that's why they had all that payment information. But right. they managed to lose the payment information, names, all that kind of stuff you really, 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 really don't want. So that's charming. Sweet. There's also a little special mention to our friends in Britain. Um, your government outsourced some important biometric stuff to a third-party company who may have accidentally leaked all your fingerprints and stuff. <laughs> but only of government employees and stuff. So it's Oh, okay. good. Yeah. Just high-value targets. Just high-value, Okay, yeah. good. In terms of news, such a bad, bad two weeks for Facebook. I, I've only put stars next to the two worst stories. There's more in the show notes. Actually, can I can I back you up just to make a, a, a public statement that I want to always say and keep telling people this? Uh, you had one here that there's a breach at Hy-Vee supermarket chain in the United States uh, tied to the sale of 5 million stolen credit cards and debit card numbers. If you use Apple Pay, 
your credit card number is not in that database. Yep, because it was a one-off number that existed briefly and then went away, and so it might be in the database, but it's 100% useless. Every time I use Apple Pay at a store in the U.S. where everybody's like, whoa, that's crazy, that's new, that's amazing, I say, no, it's secure, and here's why. And people are always like, really? I did not know that. I believe Google Play, Google Pay is also secure in the same way. It is. Uh, not uh, not uh, Samsung Pay, though. That I can't comment on because I don't know enough about how it works. But basically, there's an AP, there's, there, there, there is a standard technology which Apple uses and which um, Google uses. And that technology provides for these transient credit card numbers. Right. And so most like stuff like um, Fitbit Pay and stuff should all be using that same protocol. Right. Basically, if it needs a chip and pin style modern reader, it should be using that protocol. If it'll work on an old swipey reader because they're doing some weird RF stuff, it will not have security because it's using these swipey RF stuff. Which I think right. Is That's what I think is what uh, Android Pay was doing. I'm sorry. I'll get it right. Yeah. Samsung Pay was used to be doing. That is what they were doing. And they, they bigged it up as a feature. And I said from the start it was a bug. Yeah. And I stand yeah. by that statement. Um. Yeah. So our friends at Facebook. So, Facebook, basically, it looks like Facebook knew about the view as bug that caused a massive data breach before it became public in 2018, uh, because they were protecting their employees from it while proceeding to not do anything about the problem. I don't remember that bug. Which one is that? It allowed you to become someone else on Facebook and see Facebook from that person's point of view. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so they knew about that and put in protections to protect Facebook staff while leaving Facebook users exposed. Oh, that's swell. Swell. Then um, NBC's Dylan Byers did a little bit of sleuthing and managed to find the document which seems to prove pretty categorically that Mark Zuckerberg lied to the U.S. Congress (gasps) because it appears that they had become aware of scraping activity by a certain little company called Cambridge Analytica in 2015. And he claimed they didn't know anything about oh, yeah, it. We didn't know what this was going on. And then we have these this document showing, yeah, there seems to be scraping going on. What are we going to do about this? And the answer was diddly squad. So, wow. A, they didn't actually do their job. And B, what Mark Zuckerberg said to Congress doesn't seem to be accurate with the facts. I believe you can go to prison for lying to Congress. It's contempt, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's contempt, but it's something uh, some people get sent to prison for. Sorry, not on contempt, a regular the other basis. one. Perjury. That's the word I was looking perjury. for. Perjury. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway. But it's not, it's, I, it's not like a regular court perjury, because there's regular old court perjury, which is bad. But uh, Congress, that that's a real, they really don't like that. Yeah, I can't imagine why. <laughs> and they got up to some more shenanigans, but we'll leave that to, to your own reading. Uh, lots of really good stuff and opinion and analysis this the, the, these two weeks. Um, I, I was just fascinated, right? So the same set of facts were reported by two different blogs I read, and they just seem like inverse stories of each other. So hmm. it really is a glass is half full or a glass is half empty point of view on the world. So Google added this thing called password checkup to Chrome, and they started to put up alerts whenever people would go to a website that has a known data breach. I mean, this is basically the the, the same features that uh, 1Password gives you and stuff like that. And 
26% of people have responded to these notifications and changed unsafe passwords. And of those, 60% chose secure passwords. So Mac Observer reported that as password check, helping users stay safer. Because 26%... that's true. Yeah, 26% more people having changed their passwords and 60% of them doing it well is better. Meanwhile, so wait a minute. The the other forty percent of the twenty six percent changed them to similarly unsafe passwords. Yes, but at least okay. they changed them, so they're not in the data breach anymore. <laughs> well, they're just in a maybe a di- different database breach, right? Well, not until they're breached again, unless they were no. But I mean, if they changed it from monkey to password, yeah, okay, then they're in a lookup table that will probably get hacked pretty quickly. But yeah, yeah. But anyway, sixty percent of twenty six percent is still people got helped. Yeah, whereas Naked Security reported on exactly the same story with the headline, Chrome users ignoring warnings to change breached passwords. Same fact, like, because 74% are ignoring the warnings. (laughs) Which is more, right? I just thought it was fascinating that uh, Charlotte Henry in TMO has a very positive and rosy view of planet Earth. And the guys at Naked Security have obviously seen far too much and become far too grizzled by being in the security industry, and they just saw the glass as being three quarters empty. I just thought it was very funny. John, John Dunn, yeah. So this is a uh, an extension that does what? It watches your passwords? No, it sees the web pages you go to, and if you go to a page with a known breach, it tells you. Okay, that so, doesn't mean your password is unsafe. Well, it just no, no, the okay, site so, you went to. So. So the first part of it is, if you go to a website with a known breach, it will tell you, and then it will see whether or not you respond. I presume it's if you use Google's built-in password manager, it will know that uh, you changed okay. your password and what you changed it to. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's a good thing that browsers are proactively telling people, by the way, this site was hacked last Wednesday or whatever, you know. Oh, it says, uh, if it notifies... Uh, if it notices a match for a password and username combination, the user can either continue to log in, ignore it, but be warned next time, log in and change it, or ignore the warning by clicking close. So they, yeah. It compares a hashed version of every user password entered against a database of 4 billion that Google knows to have been compromised. Oh, so it's not necessarily the password for that site. It's just somebody else already knows this combination that you did. That's, That's yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, it, no, it, it's a good feature. It, it's... Yeah, it's, a good it's sort of like, have I been pwned? It's very like, they seem to be using fact, their own database. Is. But given that okay. they're Google, I'm sure it's a big database. And they can search it really well. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, as I say, I just thought it was hilarious that this, the same facts, because it's based on the same blog post by Google where Google said what had happened. And it's just, like, I thought there were two stories for a moment until I started reading them. I was like, this sounds very familiar. That's so, funny. So... An interesting post from Brian Krebs. So a lot of websites are being very proactive about telling people, we found the password you use with us in a data breach. Please change it with us before the bad guys come and knocking. And we, 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 we compliment companies for doing this. But companies are getting some serious blowback because users mistakenly assume that that means that the company is storing their passwords in plain text, which is absolutely not what it means. And so Brian Krebs just has a good article explaining why you need to check your assumptions before you go off the deep end when you get an email like that. 
So there, people are seeing that and assuming, oh, these guys have lost my password. No, they're assuming, well, yes, maybe, or if they're slightly more informed but still wrong, they're assuming it means that the company must be storing it in plain text because how else could they know? And the answer is, well, oh, the password okay. leak is in plain text. They hashed the leaked password and compared to their hash of your password, they didn't store it in plain text. It was leaked in plain text. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because there's probably 1.6% of humans know what you just said, if yeah. I round up. And most of them are here <laughs> listening, right? So basically, it's a thing where people go on Twitter and have these big explosions. I just got this email, and that proves that such and such a website is really bad at security, whereas actually what it proves is the exact inverse. And yeah. so Brian Krebs is just sort of pointing out, you know, be careful, don't go on that rant. Check your assumptions. It's always good. Yeah. Um, a somewhat disturbing story um, about a guy who, through some mechanism, ended up with a, a fraudulent iTunes gift voucher that he applied to his account. And Apple locked out his Apple ID, and then he suddenly realized that he was locked out of most of his life. So the takeaway Ooh. here is be very careful about using iTunes vouchers, this whole if it looks too good to be true thing is probably comes into play here because I think a lot of people see $100 Apple voucher for $50 in like the dodgier parts of the internet and think it's free money. So here's here's the problem. This is would be an easy one to do successfully and wreck people is uh, you can regularly buy iTunes gift cards for 15% off on eBay. Yeah. And it's legitimate. Yeah. 15%. I do it all the time. Yeah. 15%, you see, is, is still within the believable. I've seen them go on yeah. dodgier websites for like, you know, 20 bucks for a $100 voucher and stuff like okay, that. And yeah. At that point, you're going, yeah. ah, come on now. I, I can sometimes get 20%, but 15%, I get it real often. So, in fact, there, there's an account you can follow on Twitter. I forget the name of it, but something like iTunes gift card. Yeah, because it's basically a promotional technique that Apple will use quite often around, uh, you know, as we're coming up to the holiday season and stuff. Yeah, I, I get them probably four or five times a year and I buy them in packs and then I put them on my accounts. And that way, everything you pay for is now 15% off. So my monthly fee to pay Apple for my two terabytes of uh, storage for my family, yeah. I pay, I'm 15% off on that. Yeah, because it just my, comes out uh, my iTunes subscription fifteen percent off if I've bought a gift card. So yeah, yeah. So as I say, just you know, you know, as 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 you say, that reasonable discounts are out there and you know are available to you if you if you look for them. But stuff that looks like stupidly good to be true, it's standard right. stuff applies, right? If it was a car and it was in a car dealership, how suspicious would you be? <laughs> right, right. Um, an interesting story then from Naked Security. It was a presentation, I think it was at DEF CON again, um, where a security researcher was pointing out that the GDPR is having a slight un undesired side effect. So the GDPR gives you, as the subject of a piece of data, the right to ask a company what data they have on you. It's called a subject access request or a SAR. Okay. And... According to the GDPR, the company who receives a SAR is supposed to make very sure you are who you say you are before they answer your question. Because otherwise what they've done is breached your data. Right. Turns out lots of companies are very bad at that. 
Oh, no. So you can use the GDPR to invade people's privacy. <laughs> now, hopefully this will draw attention to this silliness and put an end to it. But it's kind of interesting that you just can't win sometimes. Like, you just right, can't right. win. So this guy, basically, the security researcher decided to figure out how real a problem this was by pretending to be his girlfriend, with her permission, and just going around and trying to get her information with SARS. And a lot of surprisingly large companies handed it over without actually verifying that he was who he said he was. Even a guy asking for the girl's data? Well, if you do it over email, they don't know. True, true. Yeah. <sighs> nice. Yeah, anyway. As I say, it's an interesting read. Um, and then a very interesting uh, post on media post about a survey of consumers and how they value their data. Would you give out your email address? Those kind of questions. And then how much do you think your profile is worth? How much would we have to pay you to get you to hand over this and that? I, I can't really summarize it, to be honest, because it's just a lot of very interesting stuff. But if you're curious about how people feel about data and you can find glass half full stuff in this story. What particularly caught my attention is that the value people are assigning to the privacy in 2019 is higher than the value they were assigning in 2018. Oh, interesting. interesting. So there's my that glass. That sounds like a fun read. Yeah. So that's my glass half full. The glass half empty is people think their data is worth about a tenner. <laughs> which is wrong. Uh, okay. So there's your glass half empty. So again, we could write two headlines with the same fact. So with all that done, let's let's suggest some listening and do some palate cleansing. So suggested listening first. So this is not like palate cleansing is happy, happy, joy, joy, right? Suggested risk listening is interesting. Not everything interesting is necessarily happy, happy, joy, joy. Okay. Thanks to the wonderful Adam Christensen and the fact that very briefly, the Mac Roundtable made its way to the top of the iTunes charts despite being on <laughs> hiatus for quite some time. Yeah, we that was hilarious. Yeah, so Adam, so Adam responded to us through a back channel and saying, you know, I think those charts are dodgy. And then he sent a link to an episode of a podcast I hadn't heard from before called Darknet Diaries, where they hmm. investigated how easy or difficult it is to game the iTunes rankings. And it was fascinating. Yeah. And it was really well done. And it basically reminded me of Reply All... But instead of it being about the internet, it's about the dark side of the internet. And Ooh. this isn't a podcast that comes out regularly. It's just an episode every couple of weeks. But I started going through the back catalogue. They're absolutely brilliant because what you will find in there is deep dives into an awful lot of stories we have covered on this podcast. I oh, interesting. Particularly enjoyed their retrospective on the first crypto wars, which is the, we mentioned it regularly that back in the Bill Clinton era, we, the US briefly classified encryption as a weapon. Oh, right, right. I remember that. And that caused all sorts of trouble. And then the government briefly enforced a mandatory government backdoor through something called the clipper chip. And that also went terribly badly wrong. If you'd like to remind yourself of why all of this stuff, you know, why history is not repeating itself, but certainly rhyming pretty strongly, and how terribly, horribly wrong it went last time, then episode 12, called Crypto Wars of Darknet Diaries, would definitely be a good listen. If you remember vaguely hearing the name Stuxnet, well, 
I could highly recommend episode 29 because I knew Stuxnet was pretty cool, but I only remembered a quarter of the cool and of just how seminally important that piece of malware was. So I would also highly recommend episode 29 on Stuxnet. And to be honest, I've subscribed and I would recommend (laughs) that if you enjoy this segment, you probably will enjoy every episode of this podcast. And they only come out every few weeks. So you're not going to be bombarded. And each of them is extremely well-crafted and well-researched. I just uh, just subscribed and downloaded those two. That sounds fantastic. Excellent. Uh, and then the only actual palate cleanser, palate cleanser, comes from you. So over to you. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, shoot. I should have read ahead to remember what this was about. That was quite a while ago I sent you this. Um, a listener has sent in an interesting security question. And in my research to try to get a, an answer, and I... Do remember I have not answered them yet. It's been a a little while. I found a really interesting blog post uh, written by the Agile Bits people, the people who uh, wrote One Password, and it's an article about why they're moving to 256-bit AES keys. And you would think you know the answer to that, uh, but it's not. It's not the answer you would think. It's not because it's more secure than uh, 128-bit. And the the explanation is fantastic. It is all about Molly, one of his dogs. And uh, Patty, his other dog, and how one of the dogs, if one of the dogs was to hide a, a bone from the other dog, how long would it take them to find it? In base, And it's a whole way of exp- explaining the math behind uh, encryption and why it doesn't matter to go from 128 to 256. It's hilarious. And uh, and then it gets super nerdy towards the end. So it's, it's, uh, it's all good. It's a lot of fun. Huh. Dogs finding bones sounds like more fun than needles in haystacks. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's great. It, you read this, and you, I, I absolutely could explain to somebody why two fifty six isn't harder than one twenty eight. One of the in reasons, a practical world. One of the reasons I like to recommend one password is because every time I interact with one password people, I realize that they're very intelligent and they know their stuff and they can explain their stuff to other human beings. And this is exactly yeah. the kind of blog post that keeps reaffirming that opinion in my mind. Because if you can explain a difficult concept well, then you understand it properly. And if you understand the encryption properly, then I want you making my password manager, please. <laughs> good point, good point. I should mention this is from 2013, the, the article I came across. But I think, I'm not sure, but I think the math is the same still. I think Pythagoras probably agrees. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a definitely was a fun-filled uh, episode. That's got to have been some DEFCON fun, having something to do with that, Bart. It, it must have been. Actually, the more we went through the show notes, we kept on seeing that phrase over and over and over again. So that explains it. It, it was DEFCON Fortnite, And yeah, that, all the security news came out. Maybe that means we're due a break. Maybe that means the next one will be really short because they've all gone on holidays. Maybe. Maybe. We'll <laughs> see. <laughs> Anyway. I'll see you in a couple of weeks or when I don't know when you'll be on next. We can't we can't look at our calendars. We're not allowed to. Well I was gonna not just say we're not allowed to, I'm not sure there's much point at the moment. Mine is in such chaos, but I believe I have some leave coming up soon and then sanity will be restored. I'm looking forward oh, to fantastic. sanity being restored. Good, good, good. Well but, thanks again for taking time out on the on the weekday. Yeah, as I say, my pleasure and it's slightly selfish because if I don't do these every, you know, two weeks ish, when I do come back There's so much news. (laughs) All right. Well, I had fun. Good. Well, anyway, whenever we talk again, approximately two weeks, I'm sure. Until then, everyone, please remember to stay patched so you stay secure.
That's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. I talked about Patreon. How do you become a Patreon? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack group that I told you about about 12 times? podfeet.com slash slack and if you want to join in the fun of the live show head on over to podfeet.com slash live on sunday nights at 5 p.m pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic nocella castaways thanks for listening and stay subscribed